Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us. That means if you've never been to church, if you walked away from church, or have struggled to find a church home, we were started for you. For more information about Collective and how to join us on a Sunday morning, please head to www.mycollective.church. Do you all remember TGIF? By a round of applause, how many of you spent your Friday nights watching the TGIF lineup? Okay, I was going to say a lot more of you probably did. So for those of you who are too young to experience the greatness that was TGIF, it was a two-hour block of television on ABC. TGIF stood for Thank Goodness It's Funny. If you don't believe me, you can fact check me on that one. And yes, it was goodness. We're talking about wholesome television now, people. But TGIF had the best shows on it. Over 10 years, there were shows like Full House, Mr. Belvedere, Family Matters, Perfect Strangers, Step by Step, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. There was even this really terrible show that I hated called Dinosaurs, where the baby dinosaur would say, I'm the baby, you gotta love me. It was, I was awful, like I hated that show so much. And growing up, my family had a tradition that on Friday nights, we would get pizza and watch TGIF together. And through years of enjoying TGIF as a family, there was always one show that I loved the most, Boy Meets World. Boy Meets World was the best one. It did, yes, thank you. I don't know anything about Girl Meets World. Didn't watch that. But as an adult, I still watch Boy Meets World every once in a while. And I'm not really sure why I loved it so much. I think partly because Mr. Feeney. Uh, but I think it also had to do with just how dramatic the show was. Every, every episode had so much drama that it would keep you glued to the TV until that 30-minute block was up. You wouldn't even get up during commercials for fear that you would miss something. And this was every, every episode of Boy Meets World. Like, Sean would run away because he felt alone uh, in the world after his dad passed away. And somehow, in 30 minutes, they find him. He goes through all five stages of grief, and he works through the pain he felt since his father died. Or Corey feels self-conscious about the way he looks, so he tries to change up his hairstyle, only making it worse and getting himself bullied. Then he meets Topanga, and she stands up, to him, stand up for him, and they fall in love, Right? The gang gets into a prank war in college that goes too far and it threatens to ruin their friendships, but Eric, the big brother, comes in like a wise old sage and reunites them with this immortal phrase, lose one friend, lose all friends, lose yourself. The show touched on the pain of hospital stays when Corey's brother ended up in the NICU. It touched on sexism when Sean dresses up for a school project and is sexually harassed. It dealt with death and job loss. It dealt with drugs and alcohol, breakups and affairs, all in 30 minutes. But here's the problem with Boy Meets World and many of the TV shows that so many of us grew up watching. Resolution always came in a 30 minute window. You see, before Netflix and before Hulu, before you could legitimately sit down and binge a whole series in an afternoon, the worst thing that could happen was an episode that was to be continued. And so they wrapped it all up and they put a neat little bow on everything by the time the credits started to roll. And more often than not, the issues that they worked through wouldn't even have a residual effect on the characters moving forward. Once it was done, it was done. And while this made great TV, we all know that this is not how life works. This is not real life. When we are faced with grief, when we're faced with pain, when we're faced with trauma, when life is hard, we all want the resolution to come by the end of the episode, by the end of the day, by the end of the week. But that isn't how life works. The cancer doesn't just go away. The pregnancies don't just start happening. The job doesn't find itself. The pain doesn't just go away. 
And that can leave us feeling broken. That can leave us feeling frustrated. That can leave us feeling confused. That can leave us feeling hopeless. And that's what this sermon series is all about. Today we're starting a brand new series called Hope in the Dark. Because there are times in our life when we have struggled to find hope. And maybe you're even in that place right now. And so we're going to wrestle with the questions of how do we have hope when it feels like all hope is lost? How do we keep hope when there's so much pain? And how do we find hope in the darkest moments of our lives? When I was a freshman in college, I had to take a class called Old Testament Survey. And we spent the entire semester going through the 39 books of the Old Testament. And one of the assignments for the class was to actually write a two-page paper summarizing one of the books. And our professor decided it was first come, first served. And so whoever came up and told him first what their book was, that's what they got to choose. And so, of course, the people sprinted to the front of the classroom. They started picking books of the Bible that they were familiar with, Genesis, Psalms, Proverbs. And for some reason, I just didn't choose a book. Instead of rushing to get in line to tell the professor what I wanted to do, I went to lunch. I know, in case you're wondering how I did in college, there you go. (laughs) Later that night, I emailed him and asked him what was available, and he told me there was one book left, Habakkuk, which is a real book of the Bible, by the way. (laughs) At first, I was like, this is a joke, okay? Which, to be honest, like when I was in college, I didn't actually even know it was a book of the Bible. I thought he was just messing with me. I've never read Habakkuk. I don't even think at that point in my life I'd ever heard a sermon on Habakkuk. But through writing the paper, it became one of my favorite books of the Bible because of how real and how honest it feels. In the Bible, the books uh, uh, that make up the Bible, 66 of them, have different genres that they fall into. And Habakkuk is classified as a minor prophet. Now, there are major prophets and there are minor prophets. And the difference between the two labels is simply, simply the length of the books. So both genres are still written by prophets, and prophets are people who are spokesmen for God. God would give them a word, and they would present it to people. And minor prophets weren't less important. They just said less words. And so Habakkuk was a prophet, and he lived and wrote about 600 years before the birth of Jesus. And he was also a very different type of prophet. He did not speak to the people on behalf of God, which was typical. Instead, he spoke to God on behalf of the people. Habakkuk was part of the nation of Judah, and Judah had experienced years of prosperity through God, but then it ended. Corruption and destruction begin to take over, and instead of prospering, his people are hurting. They're in poverty. They're being murdered at the hands of the Babylonians. And Habakkuk sees this, and he unleashes on God. That's what this whole book is about. And so 2,600 years ago, Habakkuk is asking the very same question that so many of us ask today— God, where are you? And so Habakkuk is crying out, and he's saying to God, I know you can do something about this, but where are you? And so over the next three weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to go through the three chapters of Habakkuk. And this book begins with Habakkuk receiving a prophecy. And the Hebrew word that Habakkuk uses when he writes this book to describe the prophecy is Massah. And this means an utterance. It means a feeling of doom. It means a burden. It's not a typical prophecy that people would receive. It's a dooming prophetic word. It's heavy. It's dark. And he receives this prophecy, so he goes to God on behalf of the people. And this is what he says, starting in Habakkuk 1, verse 2. He cries out, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Violence is everywhere, I cry, but you do not come to save. 
And so he's seeing all this pain around him and he calls out to God. He's saying, where are you? He's asking, are you ignoring me? Don't you see what's going on here? How can you tolerate this pain? Why don't you heal us? Why don't you save us? I mean, how real does that feel? 2,600 years later, we know that feeling. We cry out to God in that same way. What I love the most about Habakkuk is that he's just very raw and very real. And his name actually tells the story. The name Habakkuk means to wrestle and to embrace. Habakkuk is doing everything he can to embrace who he knows God is, to embrace the goodness of God, to embrace the love of God, to embrace the sovereignty or authority of God. But because of what he sees going on in the world, because of the brokenness that he experiences, and because that doesn't line up with what he knows to be true about God, he wrestles. He begins to wrestle with God. He embraces and he wrestles. The reason why is because Habakkuk's life is not a sitcom. Your life is not a sitcom. Everything is not resolved in 30 minutes or less, let alone 30 days or even 30 years. In life, sometimes you lose your job and you don't get a better job. And you don't get a job for a really long time. And when you do, you have to settle for a job with less pay or that's way below your experience and education level. And you feel like a huge failure. Sometimes in life, you think you have a good marriage. You really love your spouse, but then your spouse betrays you. And your spouse doesn't own up to what they did, but instead they blame you for what you didn't do. Your spouse leaves you and you're all alone. Sometimes in real life, you love life. Then you get sick and the doctor says that you have cancer and you go to war against cancer and you pray and you have faith and you fight it with chemo and you beat cancer and you thank God and several years later, the cancer comes back and you struggle to understand. And so you wrestle with your hopelessness while trying to embrace God. And far too often, then this happens when you're in that struggle. Some well-meaning Christian comes to the middle of your trial, to the middle of your pain, and they say, all you have to do is trust the Lord. God is in control. All you need to do is let go and let God. Side note, that's my least favorite Christian phrase that's said. I hate it. And while their theology may not be completely terrible, it's pretty terrible, not completely terrible, and their heart is good, the more they tell you to let go and let God, the more you just want to let go altogether. The more you want to run away, the more you just want to give up. Because though their intentions are good, your life feels wrecked, your hope is gone, and you feel raw. And trusting God doesn't feel good in that moment. Because you know God could do something, but he doesn't, and you don't understand why. And this is exactly how Habakkuk feels. And so he continues to cry out to God. He says, must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I'm surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. I'd read that every day if you want to know if the Bible's relevant. Like, how real is that? So Habakkuk is saying, God, I don't really think you're doing what is right. He's telling God, I don't think you're being a very good God right now. And so Habakkuk is struggling. He's got the very same problem with God that some of you have. He isn't really sure that God cares. He's angry because God is allowing suffering. And he says to God, you aren't doing much when you could. He's saying, you have the power and you're not doing anything. And I don't understand why. And then he says to God, what you're doing just doesn't seem fair. And so he wants to know, God, are you still there? 
Are you even paying attention? Do you even care? How many of you have ever thought, if you were God, you would do things differently? Right? Don't pretend you haven't done that before. You've had that thought. You've thought to yourself, if I were God, there would be no, and then you fill in the blank. Or you've thought, if I were God, I would not put this thing in the Bible because this doesn't seem fair based on how I feel or because I don't really like that that's a sin or because I don't want you to ask me to trust you with my life or my money or my relationships. Leave that alone. Or you've thought, if I were God, the world would look like this. The problem with that mentality is that it's short-sighted. And Habakkuk knows this. Habakkuk has seen this. For 40 years, the Israelites wandered the desert, and during that time, they complained. During that time, they cried out to God. They began to worship other gods. We read about that last week. They had other nations rise up and start, start war with them. But God delivered them into the promised land just like he said that he would. And the nation of Israel was stronger because of what they went through. But they only really saw this in hindsight because they had no way of seeing the big picture while they were wandering while they were struggling, while they were waiting. And Habakkuk knows this. He knows that God has a better understanding and view of the world than he does, which is why he wants to embrace God. But he's still upset. And so he tells God, he wrestles. And people ask me all the time, is it okay to ever question God? Is it okay to push back on God? And what they're really asking is, is that wrong? Is that unholy? Is that sinful? Absolutely not. In fact, one-third of the book of Psalms in the Old Testament are cries to God about pain. Several books of the Bible, entire books, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Jeremiah, and Job, express confusion about what appears to be unjust suffering for the righteous. Even Jesus, the Son of God, even Jesus on the cross, who was perfect in every way, when he became sin for us, when he took that burden on himself, and what ended up happening is he was separated from God in that moment, and God looked away. God pulled back because he can't be close to us if we have sin in our life. And Jesus cried out, why? He cried out to his own father, why? He said, I am your son. I've done everything right. Why would you turn away from me? And even Jesus questioned God in a moment of pain. Let me explain it like this. If you're a follower of Jesus, or at some point in the future, you actually make the decision to put your faith in Jesus, you'll have a story that looks just a little bit like this. It starts with you hurting, or maybe even life is good. Either way, you recognize that there must be something more to life. Your job, your family, your relationships, they all leave you wanting. And maybe you go to church and you see if God has anything to offer and you're moved. Maybe it's through a song, Maybe somebody prays for you, or maybe there's a person in your life that shares a story about how God pulled them through brokenness. Through that, you decide to put your faith in Jesus so you can experience his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy. And you experience the freedom that he offers. You experience the life that he offers, and it's amazing. You feel like you're on a mountaintop, and you go to church, and you feel like every sermon is just for you, and you think, God, you are so good. But then something bad happens. Your father gets sick and he doesn't get better. You pray for grandma and she dies. Your boyfriend, the Christian, cheats on you. The person you look up to and admire isn't who you thought they were. The doctor gives you news that no one should ever hear. Whatever it is, it happens to every single person in some way. And this is the way life works. But it hurts. And you struggle. And at some point, many of us have what Henry Blackaby in the book Experiencing God calls a crisis of belief. 
And we ask God, God, if you are so good, why are things not going the way I want them to or I expect them to? Why am I right here with my life? Why does it look like this? And we cry out, God, are you even there? Are you involved? Are you listening? And people tend to respond to a crisis of faith in one of two ways. The first way people tend to respond to a crisis of faith is to live in denial. With good intentions, people just deny the bad. Right? They say, this isn't happening. God is still good. I'm just going to pretend like everything is okay. This is the equivalent of the meme of the this is fine dog. Right? You've seen this before. Right? The room is literally on fire and the dog sitting in the middle of it trying to convince itself and everyone else around that everything is okay. People who are in denial often offer up cliche expressions about God, such as this must be all part of God's plan or God won't give me more than I can handle. We'll talk about those phrases a little bit more in the future, but in the case of denial, we use misinterpretations of scripture instead of facing reality. We live in denial. Denial of pain, denial of grief, denial of hopelessness. And those people end up refusing to acknowledge what is going on and that it hurts. The second way people tend to respond to a crisis of faith is to blame God. They say, I wanted my life or my career or my family or my finances to look a certain way, but instead it's much worse or it's much more difficult than I thought it would be or maybe the things that they wanted aren't even existent. And they say, God's not doing anything about it, so he must not be real. Right? They cry out, they say, screw it all, forget it all. I've tried church, I've tried the Bible, but I don't like the way my life looks, so it must not be real. This is all God's fault. A few years ago, I was working in a church in Annapolis, and we spent a Sunday talking about adoption. And there's a strong culture of adoption in Annapolis and in our church, so we actually wanted people to share their stories. And the whole Sunday was focused on the verse in the book of James that says this. It says, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. And on this particular Sunday, I just happened to be serving in the lobby so I could meet our first-time guests. And after second service, I met a couple who came to church for the first time because they were searching for answers. They had been married for years and struggled to get pregnant. After years of negative pregnancy tests and multiple miscarriages, they didn't know where to turn, so they decided to give God a chance. My first thought when I met them was, what an awesome Sunday to come to church. You're upset with God, you're looking for answers, and your first time in church in seven years, and we're talking about loving children who other people don't want, but they never saw it. Instead, over the next few weeks, as I got to know them, they became angrier and angrier. They believed that going to church would solve their problems, and when they didn't get pregnant, they began to resent God. They blamed God because life wasn't what they hoped it would be because there was pain, there was disappointment, there was unmet expectations. And in their crisis of belief, they blamed God. They blamed God to the point of ignoring him when he was clearly trying to get their attention. Now those are the two typical responses, but there's actually one more, and this is the tough one. This is the one that truly matters. The third way you can respond to a crisis of faith is to wrestle and as best as you can continue to embrace. Another way to put it is that you lean in. The kid I grew up with who's a fighter pilot in the Air Force once told me that when pilots are in training, one of the things that they actually practice is how to survive when the engines fail. 
And he explained that the instinct when a jet starts to slowly make its way toward the ground is to pull back on the yoke to, or the control wheel because that's how planes gain altitude, right? They're taught how to get it off the ground. So when it's going toward the ground, they decide we need to pull back. But what they're actually taught is to lean in. And crashing toward the ground, they actually lean in and they actually accelerate their free fall. And what this does is it pushes the nose of the plane toward the ground. It actually causes the pilots to gain velocity. It causes them to go very fast toward their destruction. But once they gain enough velocity, then they pull back a little to slow the jet down. And they actually repeat this until the jet slowly, slowly, slowly lands safely on the ground. And so when you feel hopeless, you wrestle, you lean in. When you feel pain, you wrestle, you lean in. When you just don't understand what God is doing, you wrestle, you lean in. And when you do this, does life get better? Not always. But if you continue to wrestle, you will see God moving in your life. It might not always be in the way you had hoped or the way you had imagined, but you will see God. This is what you need to do when you're in a crisis of belief. And the reality is we all get there at some point. We're all in that space right now. We've been there before. We're approaching it again. We've all been there. And this is Habakkuk. He cries out to God that this doesn't seem fair. And God actually responds to him. This is my favorite part. This is going to blow you away. This is what made me fall in love with the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is wrestling with God. He says, I don't understand what's going on. And it doesn't seem fair. And this is what God says. The Lord replied, look around at the nations. Look and be amazed. For I am doing something in your day, something you wouldn't believe, even if someone told you about it. Finally, God, you're going to do what is right. God, you're going to relieve the pain. God, we're going to be prosperous again. God, we're going to be blessed. You're going to do something that even if you told me it's so good, I wouldn't believe it. So God says, I'm about to intervene, and you're going to be amazed. It's going to be unlike anything you've ever seen before. But then God tells Habakkuk that he's going to use the Babylonians. And the Babylonians are the bad guys, the enemies. God continues when he says this. He says, I'm raising up the Babylonians, a cruel and violent people. They will march across the world and conquer other lands. They are notorious for their cruelty and do whatever they like. So God says, you think it is bad now, but it's about to get worse. And I'm actually going to use your enemies to bring justice because of your sin. And this makes absolutely no sense to Habakkuk. This is so confusing for him. He doesn't understand. So what do you do when you find yourself in that place? When you think things are bad enough, but somehow they get worse. When you expect God to do something, but he shows up differently than how you had hoped. What you have to do is you have to wrestle with the honest questions and embrace a genuine faith in God. You can do both at the same time. I know that's hard. I know it feels contradictory, but you can live in that space. And I want you to watch as Habakkuk does this. He tries to embrace, yet he doesn't understand, so he's wrestling. He says this, O Lord, my God, my Holy One, you who are eternal, he's embracing. He's saying, God, you're my leader, you're holy, I trust you. And he continues, surely you do not plan to wipe us out. He's wrestling. He says, O Lord, our rock, he's embracing. You've sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our many sins, he's wrestling. But you're pure, and cannot stand the sight of evil, he's embracing. Will you wink at their treachery? He's wrestling. Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they? He's trying to embrace, but he's also wrestling. Listen, if you're there right now, 
I want you to know that God understands your pain. He welcomes your questions. And I'm convinced that God would rather have you yell at him than walk away from him. And so when you hit that wall, when you hit the crisis of faith, when you have no hope, don't deny your doubts. Don't run from God. Let your doubts drive you to continue to embrace, even when you're wrestling with God. I'm watching this play out in a friend's life right now. When they were first married, they struggled to get pregnant. After years of infertility, they tried IVF, and it worked. They actually found out they were pregnant with twins. But almost immediately, they also found out that one of the twins was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, which, if you know anything about it, is just a terrible disease. She's a teenager now, and for years, they've been fighting. They've been praying. They've been raising awareness, but there still isn't a cure. Multiple times a year, they end up in a hospital for weeks at a time as they try to give her the best life possible, possible, but it's hard. As if that wasn't enough, about a year ago, the dad was let go from a dream job. Not just any dream job, a dream ministry job. They were church planners. They gave up their whole life to start a church and show other people that God loves them, and this wrecked them. They're living states away from their family and support system. They're no longer able to attend the church that they helped start. And they still had a daughter who was sick. And for the last year, they've wrestled and embraced. I'd really love to tell you that today, as they navigated that pain, everything has worked out. I would love to tell you that there wasn't more betrayal. I would love to tell you that their daughter was healthier. I would love to tell you that their dad had found a dream job. But two months ago, the mom was starting to have stomach pains They brought her to the hospital and they found out that she had 50 masses and she was diagnosed with ovarian and endometrial cancer. And this week she had her second round of chemo. And I'm watching as the last year of their life, they are wrestling and they are embracing. They're wrestling, they're asking God, why us, haven't we been through enough? And they're embracing. They say, God says, Uh, In James 1, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider an opportunity for great joy. They want that joy. They're wrestling. God, why would you ask us to plant a church if you're going to take it all away from us? And they're embracing. God, you said in this world there would be trouble, but you will overcome the world. We trust you in that. They're wrestling. God, we feel alone and like we're a burden to our friends and family. Why is this happening? And they're embracing. God, you promise that you will never leave us and never forsake us. Please show us where you are. And they're wrestling. God, Do you even care? And they're embracing. God, you promise that if we put our faith in you, we will spend eternity in heaven and there'll be no more pain and there'll be no more tears and everything will be made new. We long for that. And so they're wrestling and they're embracing. And I don't know where you are with God and I don't know where you are in your life, but you need to do the same thing. The problem for some of you though is that you don't have anything to embrace and you're just wrestling. And because of that, you're tired. You're worn out. You're looking for that little pinhole of light to show you where to keep going. But all you have is is the ability to wrestle because you've never fully embraced what God has to offer. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you first need to embrace what God has given to you. Embrace the forgiveness that he's offered. Embrace the hope that he has offered. Embrace the freedom that he's offered. Embrace new life that he has offered. And you do that by putting your faith in Jesus. That's where you start. If you feel like your life is only wrestling, this is where it begins. And I'm going to be honest. I know that some of you have been feeling the push to be baptized, and for whatever reason, you're avoiding it. I feel like today should be the day you stop running 
and start embracing? Does it make all of your problems go away? No. But it gives you a savior to embrace in a season of hopelessness. And there's no better time to start wrestling with that decision than now because Easter's coming up and we're gonna celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and baptism symbolizes the death of your old self and the resurrection of new life in you. So celebrate new life, celebrate eternal hope, celebrate forgiveness on the day that it became real. For some of you, that's your first step. That's the first thing you need to embrace. And so you can check off baptism on your connection card. Come talk to somebody in the lobby. But embracing starts with embracing Jesus as the leader and forgiver in your life. If you are a follower of Jesus, you need to keep wrestling and keep embracing. Because what if honestly acknowledging your doubts is your first step toward building a deeper faith? What if embracing your secret questions opens the door for a better understanding of God's character? What if drawing closer to God and developing a relentless faith requires you to bear something that just feels unbearable, to trust him in a moment of doom, to embrace his strength when you are weak with a burden? What if it takes real pain to experience deep and abiding hope? When it comes to the life of Habakkuk, we're still just in chapter one. As he wrestles and he embraces, resolution is actually really far away. And so next week, we're going to be in chapter 2, but I want to warn you, chapter 2 is not much better. But don't walk away from God in chapter 1. Life is not a sitcom. We have real problems and real pain, and they last far beyond a 30-minute time frame. We need to wrestle and embrace because that is where we'll eventually find our hope. Let's pray. God, sometimes um, God, sometimes we're mad at you. God, sometimes we don't understand you. Um, God, sometimes we're not sure you're there at all. God, I, I just pray as we, we experience those moments as we work through those moments, God, ultimately at some point in our future when we go back into those moments, God, that we feel comfortable wrestling, but God, that we also embrace who you truly are. God, we've seen you change lives. We've seen your impact. We've felt that in our own lives. We've seen it in the people around us. And God, maybe ultimately it's that we just long for that. But God, I pray as, as people we can wrestle and embrace God, when we feel hopeless, when we feel like our pain is too much, when we feel like the brokenness from our past or our present just never will go away, God, I, I pray that we don't get up and run, but we lean in. We move toward you. We wrestle and embrace. God, because you promise us hope. You promise us that you will overcome the world. You promise us that we'll find joy when we work through this pain and we work through this hopelessness. So God, help us see that. God, help us share that with other people. God, thank you for Habakkuk. God, that the Bible isn't all rainbows and butterflies. God, but there's real life in there and there's real pain in there. And resolution doesn't come verse by verse, but maybe at the end of the story. God, thank you um, ultimately that we know that you're the resolution and you're the hope. And God, that we get to celebrate that in a few weeks. God, we love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.